If you have your Bible, please open them to Colossians chapter 1. I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ, who are at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in, in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you, just as in all the world it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf. And he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Let us pray. Almighty God, come before you, O Lord. Thanking you yet again for this wonderful day. This glorious day where the, the sun has not ceased to rise and give us its light even through the clouds. The rain has not ceased to fall. <laughs> we thank you, O Lord, for this Lord's day that we can come as your people to worship. And I pray now, O God, as we Dig into your word. <clears throat> you bless my mouth. You would help me to pronounce that which is in accordance with sound doctrine. You would speak through me to edify your people. And above even that, God, speak through me to your glory and to the exaltation of Christ. Pray that you would help your people to be attentive. Pray, Lord, that you would open their heart to receive your word. And I pray, God, uh, that after, when we come into time to partake of the supper, that you will bring us into a deep remembrance of what Christ has done for us. I ask all these things for your glory, for the sake of your name, and pray that you would bless us now. Amen. <clears throat> So, good morning again. Uh, I'm overjoyed to be back with you all this Lord's Day. Uh, while I have enjoyed the time with my family, uh, and also appreciate the opportunity I had two weeks ago to help at another church, uh, I always, always miss being here on Sundays. Uh, this morning, the elders get to continue our semi-experiment uh, by having me pick up in the next verse in Colossians. Uh, 
and continue our expository sermon series in the book. And the reason I call it a semi-experiment is because we don't know of many other churches where an expository series through a particular book of Scripture is preached in a rotation with multiple pastors. We know plenty of churches who rotate in preaching, but not necessarily who rotate through the same book. We all have a little bit of a different style of preaching, so it'll be, it'll be interesting to see how we differ moving through the same book. Uh, and today, we'll be looking at verse 6 in chapter 1. And I'm going to kind of divide the verse into three main points uh, with a few other verses to look at. And then I'm going to make a few points of application. And I'm very excited uh, to be preaching again. And we do have a lot to get to. So let's begin. Verse 6, Colossians chapter 1. The gospel which has come to you just as in all the world, it, uh, it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing even as it has been doing in you since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. So this first main point, we can call it the gospel's success. We can see here that Paul is expectant of the gospel's success. He is not surprised at all that it's going forth powerfully because he writes the gospel which has come to you just as in all the world also. It is bearing fruit and increasing. And we're going to talk about that fruit just a little bit later. But I want you to see that Paul recognizes that the gospel is bearing fruit beyond where he has been able to go. Look back at verse 4. It says, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. Paul was not there at the generation of their faith in Christ Jesus. He heard about it. And so the gospel has gone beyond where he's been. And this is glorious. Indeed, the whole letter, the whole letter of Colossians is an encouragement to a young church from an authoritative apostle for the express reason that one has not been able to visit and they're facing challenges from false teachers who are trying to lead them astray. Okay, so the, the part of the whole point of Colossians is that Paul, as an apostle, wants to visit this church and give them encouragement. And so he's writing them, saying, I want to encourage you in writing, even if I can't be there face to face. And we can be sure from verses like this, that Paul is well aware of the eschatological promises of the Old Testament. He fully expects God to work powerfully according to his promises. You see, you see, you see he says, the gospel which has come to you where I have not been, just as in all the world also, just as in all the world also, it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing. So let's look at a few of these Old Testament promises that I fully believe Paul had in mind. Uh, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 9. And this will be a familiar verse. We've talked about it uh, a number of times over the past year or so. At least I have. Uh, and I actually talked about it in the sermon I gave at the other church uh, two weeks ago. But Isaiah chapter 9. I want to look at 
verses 6 and 7. Familiar verse, Christmas verse, we call it. But this is a glorious promise. Glorious promise of eschatological truth given in the Old Testament I think Paul has in mind. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. This is obviously, and, and the apostles and the gospels use it this way, it's obviously a prophecy of Christ. A son will be given to us. And the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And quite often we stop there. We don't read the next verse. Quite often we say, what a glorious promise of Christ's coming. And we celebrate Christmas time, you know, the, the baby in the manger and, and the incarnation of God. But then you have to continue reading verse 7. It says, there will be no end to the increase. Same word Paul uses. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. If we read verse 6 and leave out verse 7, we've done ourselves a disservice. If we read verse 6 and say, what a glorious promise that God will give us a son and he's going to be called Mighty God, Eternal Father. He's going to be great and glorious. And then we don't read about his glorious kingdom, his government, which will never cease to increase, the peace which he ushers in, which will never cease to increase. We've only got half the concept. Turn with me to Daniel chapter 2. Let's look at another promise. Daniel chapter 2, and I'm going to read two, two particular verses here. I'm not going to go through the whole passage, but I want to give just a, a tiny bit of background information. So this is another, <coughs> excuse me, this is another uh, verse that we've looked at in the past, within the past year. But here, King Nebuchadnezzar has had a dream that's troubled him greatly. In this dream, he's seen a statue that's divided into four parts, right? Without getting into all the details, these four parts represent four kingdoms, four earthly kingdoms that were going to be established, right? Nebuchadnezzar was at the head, and then the next kingdom was going to be Medo-Persia, right? So you've got Babylon, Medo-Persia, then you've got Greece under that, and then you've got Rome under that. And that's the historical understanding of what this verse is talking about. These kingdoms that are coming are actual kingdoms that existed in history, okay, and the prophecy is about the kingdom that's going to come after those kingdoms. And so if we look at verse 35, verse 35, Daniel chapter 2, it says, The iron, the clay, the bronze, and the silver, the gold were crushed, were crushed all at the same time and became like chaff from the summer threshing floor. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. And so Nebuchadnezzar has this dream and he sees this statue divided in four parts and it represents four kingdoms and there's a stone that comes in and strikes the feet of the statue. This is symbolic. This is a representation of the end of the Roman kingdom. But what is the nature of the kingdom that comes in to replace Rome? He says, the stone that came and struck the feet of the statue 
grew and filled the entire earth. So look at verse 44. In those days, the days of the fourth kingdom, in those days, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all of these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. So this stone that strikes the feet and topples the statue, topples the glory of all of these kingdoms, is a kingdom which God is bringing in to fill the whole earth. Daniel chapter 7, turn with me. I'm going to read two verses, verses 13 and 14. And again, I, I encourage you to go home, look at the context of these verses. I'm not speaking out of context, but we've got a lot to get to, so I'm just going to read. Verse 13, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him, this one coming up to the ancient of days, to God Almighty, this one, it says, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. I submit to you that Jesus Christ is this one coming up to the ancient of days and receiving a kingdom which will not end, which will not cease to increase. So many times we say, praise God, yes, Jesus is king, Jesus is Lord, God is almighty, and then we look around us and we go, Man, what about this world? God promised a growing kingdom on the earth. Psalm chapter 2. And I know we're moving quickly, but it's because we've got a lot to get to. Psalm chapter 2. I just want to read this. This happens to be my absolute favorite psalm. I love to sing this psalm. I love the glory of Christ in this psalm. Psalm chapter 2, starting in verse 1, it says, Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain, a vain thing? Here we have again, speak of nations, not just nation, not just one land in Israel, not just one section of land somewhere on the earth, but it says, Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. This is what we see in a nation like America today. We see a nation that was founded on godly principles, on this idea that the kingdom of God was growing and expanding to the farthest reaches of the earth. And then you have secular atheists and pagans who have come to power in the government because of lack of duty on the church. Right? We have these things that have established themselves and they've laughed in the face of God and say, let's cast God off. And so the nation that once loved to pray 
and love to sit in church and love to be Christians, helping Christians, has become a nation who doesn't know what a boy or a girl is. Who says it doesn't matter how God made you, it only matters how you feel. They raise their voice against the Lord and His anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. But look at this. They laugh at God. Look at verse 4. He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, but as for me, I have installed, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give you what? I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now, therefore, O kings, take warning. O judges of the earth, worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to who? The Son. Do homage to the Son, the King, your King. Do homage to the Son that He not become angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in Him. This here is a, it's, it's a messianic psalm. It's about the kingdom of God that never ceases to expand. It's about the peace that's ushered in that never ceases to increase. It's a warning to the rulers of the earth. Jesus is your king. Bow the knee or you'll be broken to pieces like a piece of pottery with an iron bar. Psalm 110. This first verse, I'm not going to be the first person to say this, but I hold it. You know, it's, it's very interesting truth. Uh, you might could say that Psalm 110.1 is God's favorite Bible verse. Why? Because it's the most quoted verse in the New Testament. This verse is important. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. This was absolutely in the mind of every last one of the apostles when they were teaching. They knew this promise. The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Meaning that all the enemies of the Son, all the enemies of God, would be defeated while Christ sat at the right hand of him who sits on the throne. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. 
your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. In holy array from the womb of the dawn, your youth are to you as the dew. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief of men over a broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Hebrews makes an argument from this verse about being priests forever after the order of Melchizedek. You see, because Christ, because Christ is resurrected and he lives today, he is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. He lives forever to make intercession before God on our behalf. He rules through his church in the midst of his enemies. This is the nature of the kingdom of God until Christ returns and defeats the final enemy, death. All of God's enemies, all of God's enemies will be put under his feet. The gospel is successful. The gospel will have success. The Great Commission will have success. These are all passages that Paul would have known, and I would argue probably even had in mind. So in one of the commentaries that I read in preparation for today, uh, it was G.K. Beale, and he made the argument that Paul actually probably had in mind uh, in, these, in, in verse 6 and some of the verses surrounding uh, Genesis 128, the creation mandate, you know, fill the earth and subdue it, all that kind of stuff. But it's interesting that Paul uses that word increasing, increasing, increasing. Now, you can, you can gather that concept from fill the earth and subdue it. But that mandate, that mandate is caught up inside of the kingdom. The way that you're able to fill the earth and subdue it is because Jesus is king over the earth. And so the fact that Paul says the gospel bears fruit constantly and is increasing I think you could relate it straight back to Isaiah 6. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. And so I want to switch gears real, real quick here, and I want to say that typically, typically Baptists are great at recognizing the effect of the gospel on individuals. Okay? Historically, we've been great at understanding what the gospel does to individuals, how it changes a man. But often, we don't emphasize its effects on groups and even nations. But the eschatology of the Old Testament, as it regards the kingdom of God, promises an increase of government and a peace that does not end. This is absolutely one of the effects of the gospel of Christ. Not just that it changes the hearts of men, but because it changes the hearts of men, it changes nations. So, my next main point, the gospel's fruit. What is the gospel's fruit? I mentioned we were going to talk about the fruit in verse 6, and so here's where we do that. 
Verse 6 continues, constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it. <coughs> the gospel is the power to transform nations as well as individuals. I'm going to look at another very familiar verse, Romans chapter 1, verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it, the gospel, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Understand that in mind in this verse is not simply individuals. It's not the power simply for individuals. It's the power for peoples to be saved. You know, Paul here makes the division between Jew and Gentile. That's the historic delineation. Right? I mean, all, all, all through the Old Testament, we have God's people. We have Israel, right, being talked about. And then when Christ comes, he starts talking about the Gentiles. And then Paul starts ministering to the Gentiles. And Peter starts ministering to the Gentiles. Because Christ had promised that all of them would come under God. The gospel is the power, is the power to change nations and peoples. The sacrifice of Christ is powerful to save because it was the purpose of the triune God to accomplish salvation through the gospel. Through the sacrifice of Christ. And another way to put this is to say that the gospel always bears fruit. It is incapable of not accomplishing its purpose. If God's purpose was to save, was to transform nations and peoples and individuals, because it was the purpose of God to do so, it cannot fail. And this is, in fact, the basis for the instruction that Paul will give later in the letter. That the gospel of Christ has the power to change men. And so right now I want to look at a section that we're going to be going through here in, in, in a number of weeks. right? But this is... This is the high Christology of the book of Colossians. I mean, Paul just goes on a tear here. He, you could tell when he, when he was writing or dictating this letter, the glory of Christ just consumed his mind and he pours out all of this just glory onto the page. Let's look. This is just a couple verses down. Chapter 1 in Colossians, starting in verse 12, it says, Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. For He rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. 
He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He also is the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself. Having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And although you, Colossians, were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach if indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. You see, the gospel is powerful because of who Christ is. Christ is the creator and the sustainer of all things. He made all things in heaven and on earth. He made them all and he upholds them all by his power. Therefore, he is able to save through his power. He is able to transform through his power. So, what does this transformation look like? What is this fruit for individuals? I've been talking a lot about nations and peoples. What is this fruit for individuals? And I want to turn in in the same exact book here to chapter 3. And I just, we're going to read this. And I want you to take it in. We've talked before about what regeneration is. We've talked before about what it means to be a new creation in Christ. And so when Paul says that the gospel is bearing fruit and increasing, what does he have in mind for the individuals that he's speaking to? This is what it says. Chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But now, but now you also put them all aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian and Scythian, slave and free man, but Christ is all and in all. 
So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Just uh, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you also, so also you should. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, man, this is a weighty, this is a weighty command right here. Whatever you do in word or deed, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks through him to God, the Father. This is what transformation looks like. This is what Paul is explaining to the Colossians. Transformation looks like. It's a new heart. It's a new mindset. It's a mindset on the things above and not on the things below. It's a heart of love and compassion and forgiveness toward your brothers and sisters. And a heart that is against anger and malice and deceit and lying. And beyond even that, it's a desire to make everything that you do or say, everything that you do or say, subservient to Christ as King. The fruit that the gospel is able to bear comes from understanding the grace of God. And that'll be our third point. The grace of God. When men understand the grace of God, that they are sinners, and that Christ is able to save sinners. The gospel bears fruit in their heart and in their lives. Continuing here in verse 6, it says, constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. So what motivates Christian to repent and turn from his former way of life? What is the motivation? We've talked about a changed heart. We've talked about a new set of desires. What's the foundation for these things? Why does the Christian want to be different from how he was? The motivation is knowing how unworthy you are. And that while you have absolutely nothing to offer God, God, by His grace, forgives you. The motivation for the Christian life 
is the grace of God. I'm going to offer a brief definition of redemptive grace. And this is from Louis Burkhoff in his Systematic Theology. This is his definition of grace. It is God's free, sovereign, undeserved favor or love to man in his state of sin and guilt, which manifests itself in the forgiveness of sin and deliverance from its penalty. Burkhoff's making a point here. He's getting at something. Grace is free for God to give. It's Him who has to do it. It is His free choice to give grace. It is sovereign. And here's an important point. It is undeserved, undeserved favor and love. So let me, let me give you a verse that I think sums this up even better. Okay? Let me give you a verse. 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. In this is love. Not that we loved God. Not that we loved God. But that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. The grace of God is unmerited. It is unmerited. This verse says that while you were sinners, while you were sinners, God loved you as Christians. In order for grace to be grace, it must be undeserved. It cannot be merited. Otherwise, it would cease to be grace. Grace is freely given by God, not because of anything that you have done to please Him, but because He is the loving one who is pleased to give His grace to you. So, this verse that we've looked at, verse 6, it shows us that Paul expected the gospel to spread, that he knew the promises of God to establish a kingdom that would not end. And it also shows us that it is the grace of God through the gospel that changes men and nations. And so now I want to make just a few points of application. First point. We should expect the gospel to succeed. This seems very, very simple. And it is. It is. It is very simple. But I just I want you to kind of see how we get it twisted sometimes and overcomplicated. We often, as Christians, are not, are not surprised at all when we hear of the utter moral chaos all around us and across the world. And really, it shouldn't surprise us. Unbelief abounds 
It shouldn't surprise us when sinners act like sinners. When governments run by atheists and pagans turn out to be God-haters. When people and nations reject the God who made them and raised them up, we see the fruit of it. And so many believers, they look at the world around us and they simply say, I figured. I expected that. Guys, what kind of pessimism just allows us to be that way? It, it's, not, it's, really, it's really not surprising. It's not surprising when a sinner sins. It's not surprising when someone who doesn't know God and has even rejected God turns out to do horrible things. It shouldn't surprise us when unbelievers who kind of act like moral and good people end up doing horrible, terrible things. It shouldn't surprise us when their hearts are corrupted by the sin that's within them. It shouldn't surprise us that an artist like Adolf Hitler becomes the butt of so many jokes. The most hated man in history. It, should, it shouldn't surprise us. This is what a sinful heart does in sinful men. But now I want to ask, how many times are we actually surprised when we hear about underground churches in China or the Middle East? We think, that's amazing. Those places are filled with people who are hostile to Christians. Why should things like this surprise us when it's just as clear in Scripture that the gospel of Christ will have victory? It's just as clear the gospel of Christ will have victory as it is that unbelievers are going to act a fool. Why should it surprise us? I heard a statistic that said that China was actually one of the fastest growing Christian nations. Right? That there's so many underground churches in China that it's inevitable. They'll probably be the Christian nation of the world before too long. Even over you know, the United States and Europe. Right? This shouldn't surprise us. God promised for it to happen. He said, I'm ushering in a kingdom that doesn't end and the peace that it brings doesn't end. In fact, it, it, it never ceases to increase. We should be like Paul and expect that God is going to move powerfully in ways and in places that we don't even know about. When we read a report that says, hey, did you hear about this underground church that's growing in this backwoods jungle country somewhere? I know, man, that's, that's what God said would happen. That's glorious. We should expect the gospel to succeed. Second point of application. We should expect the gospel to bear fruit in nations and people. So people who come to know Christ by the grace of God should, by a changed nature, display a new heart 
that loves the things that God loves and hates the things that God hates. You know, there's an oft-used example uh, from Paul Washer where he talks about you can't have an encounter with Christ and not be changed. And the story that he tells, he says, he says, what if I was going to show up to a place to to preach one day, right? And I, and I and I came in late. Right? I came in after I was supposed to be there, and and the people that were putting me on, you know, they said, "Brother, uh, you know, we, we we've kind of moved things around, and 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 expected you to be here on time. Like, why aren't you here on time?" And then he gives the excuse. He says, "He says, well, so I was I was on my way, and a lug nut fell off of my wheel, and it caused my wheel to kind of come off my vehicle." And it flew out into the, the middle of the interstate. And so when I, when, I, when I pulled off the road to go get the lug nut and the wheel, I got hit by a semi, and that's why I'm late. He says, you would either think that I'm insane or a liar. Because you can't have an encounter with a semi truck and not be changed. In the same way, you cannot have an encounter with the risen Christ and not be changed. The gospel bears fruit. Your heart, like I said, your heart changes so that you love the things that God loves and you hate the things that God hates. Now when it comes to nations... Right? Nations who come to be discipled, as Matthew 28 would actually have us expect, ought to become more and more conformed to the laws of God and the commands of Christ. You see, when Jesus says before his ascension in Matthew 28, he says, Go and make disciples of all the nations, teaching them everything that I have commanded you, commanded you, and behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That's not simply a promise or a command that we ought to disciple individuals in our churches. Now, that's true. We should do that. We should disciple individuals in our churches. But he says, go and make disciples of the nations. How do you disciple a nation? Well, it starts here. It starts here. But then it has to move out. It has to affect our laws. It has to affect our government. Why? Because God promised that his government, the king's government, would never cease to increase. And so the government we have to look forward to as Christians, when everything's said and done, is a government under the kingship of Christ. That every king, like we read in Psalm 2, that every king will either have his knees broken so that he bows, or he bows because he worships Christ. This is our glorious future. This is what the gospel does to nations. As it changes the hearts of men, and it spreads from person to person, it changes Congress. It changes councils. It changes kings. It changes royalty. It's like a good virus. Third point of application. We ought to be, excuse me, what ought to be one of the primary motivations in our Christian lives is the grace of God. So the grace of God ought to give us an attitude and a posture of thankfulness. 
right? And and again, I'm, I'm not going to be super expansive with these these sub points here, but when we think about the grace of God on our lives, when we think about we we've we've come to Him as sinners. Right? If, if one sin plunged the entire world into death and darkness, and yet we sin multiple times every single day, what audacity must we have to come before God who is perfect in His holiness and perfect in His righteousness? Why do we come boldly before the throne? Because it is a throne of grace. Because it is a throne where God says, I forgive your sins. I have made a way to forgive you even though you're sinful and imperfect and unholy. Because nothing that is unholy can stand in my presence. It dies. But I've made a way for you. This is the grace of God that He forgives our sins through the blood of Christ. The thankfulness that should pour out in our prayers simply because God had mercy on us. You didn't deserve it. You didn't deserve it. And He did it anyway. When we consider whether or not to share the gospel with someone, we need to remember that it was grace that saved us and only grace that can save them. And how can they know that grace if no one tells them? Grace should motivate us to share the truth with our neighbors. It should motivate us to open our mouths. That's the way we came to know Christ. Through somebody sharing the gospel with us, whether it was a pastor or a friend. The thing is, it's not solely the job of the pastor to share Christ with everybody. It's not only the pastor that should make the gospel known to the people around him. It's everyone. Grace saved you. Grace can save them. Open your mouth about it. Right? Last point. When wrestling with our sin, we ought to consider that the grace of God is sufficient to cover over a multitude of sins. So when we are struggling with our sinfulness, when we're struggling with uh, possibly indwelling sin, when we're struggling with uh, just sin in general where we just we can't get it right on a day-to-day -day basis when we try, when we're motivated by the love of God and the love of our neighbor to do what's right, and we still can't get it perfect, the same way that the Israelites could never get it perfect. We ought to understand that it's the grace of God that covers over those sins. When Paul wrote about the thorn in his side, whatever it was, what did God tell him? My grace is sufficient for you. Now, this shouldn't be an excuse 
to continue on in our sin, but it should be a motivation to repentance because it's God, God's kindness that leads us to repentance. God's kindness that He pours out mercy and grace upon you even though you've come to Him again with another sin, again, ought to lead you to repentance. It ought to lead you not to give up in your fight against sin. Not to say, well, grace increases because sin increases. Therefore, let sin increase so that grace might also increase like like, uh, Paul talks about in Romans. We shouldn't do that. We shouldn't do that at all. The kindness of God leads us to repentance. Therefore, the mercy and grace that God pours out upon us because of our sin should motivate us to live in a way that's worthy of Him. Love for the Christian and the grace of God ought to be the motivation that pushes us to repent and to live as sinlessly as we can. And I don't want to apologize for that kind of statement. I don't believe in sinless perfectionism. But I'm never going to tell you that you shouldn't strive for it. And not because it's your deeds that save you, but because God was kind to you. Because God sent His Son to die for you. Let's pray. Almighty God, thank you again for this morning. I thank you, Lord, for your word. I thank you, God, that we can trust in the victory and success of the gospel of Christ. I thank you that we can trust that it changes the hearts of men. Oh, Lord, help us. Help us, Father, to see this victory, this success. Help it, Father, to motivate us in our sharing of the gospel. Help it to motivate us, God, in our worship. Help it to increase our love for Christ. Oh God, all glory is yours. And I pray now that as we go into the time of the Lord's Supper, you'd help us to be reverent and mindful of exactly what it is that we do. Amen.